you know, when I was a kid, my mom would have to say to me, like, okay, you can only ask each adult three questions, and then you have to stop. Because I would be very probing. I would ask people, you know, inappropriate questions that they've never been asked or what we consider inappropriate. I'm Roxanne Cody, and welcome to Just the Right Book. We are joined today by the author, memoirist, blogger, advice guru, Cheryl Strayed. As most of you probably know, she's the author of the number one New York Times bestselling memoir, Wild, author of the New York Times bestselling Tiny Beautiful Things, Brave Enough, and her novel, Torch. Her books have been translated into a mere 40 languages, and as I'm sure you know, um, Wilde was turned into an Oscar-nominated film starring Reese Witherspoon and Laura Dern. Her essays have appeared everywhere, including the New York Times, Washington Post, Vogue, Salon, Tin House. Strayed has served as a co-host of the New York Times WBUR podcast called Dear Sugar, and is now the co-author of Sweet Spot Advice Column in the New York Times. All of these are impressive accomplishments, but to me, what is most impressive is the heart, sense of humanity, fearless honesty, and wisdom she brings to her writing and advice. After my interview with Cheryl, we'll hear from Brian Raitt, the assistant book buyer at R.J. Julia, who will share what's on our front table, but first my interview with Cheryl. As George Saunders has said, Cheryl is big-hearted, keen-eyed, lyrical, precise. And she reminds us in every line that if defeat and despair are part of the human experience, so are kindness, patience, and transcendence. Cheryl, welcome to Just the Right Book. Thank you. It's an honor to be here. So, Cheryl, I'm probably one of the few people who read Tiny Beautiful Things before I read Wild. And it's through that. Yeah, it's through that book that I fell in love with you. And I was prompted to invite you uh, on the show because now your advice column is appearing with Steve Amond in The New York Times. How'd you first get into the advice business? Wow. Well, first, I want to say thank you. You're right that usually the trajectory is you get to Tiny Beautiful Things through Wild. Um, Wild was published four months before Tiny Beautiful Things. I think of them as my kind of twin books. Mm -hmm. I was writing the the Dear Sugar column on the rumpus. Um, While I was doing edits on Wild, I I began writing the column just after I'd finished the first draft of Wild. So they were kind of you know, born together with mm-hmm. Wild being the, the, the older sister, if you will. But, um, <laughs> you know, I came to it I, really just on a lark. There is this website called The Rumpus, and um, back in, in February of 2010, Steve Almond, who at that time was really just an acquaintance of mine. We'd, we'd met a, uh, a few times at, at writers' conferences and such and, and liked each other's work. Uh, he sent me an email and said, I'm writing this advice column under a pseudonym named Sugar, and nobody's reading it, and I'm not really that interested in the form and of the advice column. And so, you know, it doesn't pay anything, and it just doesn't make sense for me to keep doing it. But I thought of you, because I thought maybe you'd be good at it, or you'd be interested in it. And it had never occurred to me to write an advice column. I was not really a reader of advice columns, or, you know, I would read, if I saw Dear Abby in the paper, I would glance at it for sure. But I wouldn't say that I, I followed any any advice columns at all as a reader. But it sounded fun. I mean, what better way than to find out 
what people are really doing and thinking and feeling than to, you know, be on the other side of those letters. And so I just said yes as a kind of uh, side gig. And like I said, it was a gig that paid nothing. Some people think I mean that uh, in a sort of figurative way, but I mean, actually, it paid zero. Um, so, <laughs> you know, <laughs> it, it was funny. It was, I, I realized at one of my book events that I would say it pays nothing. And people, people really did think I meant like, you know. Not a lot. It, not a lot. But no, I was like, no, it's, it's actually zero. But, you know, and so what happened, of course, is that really it sparked my interest. And I decided to, to put all of my humanity and all of my, you know, everything I'd learned as a writer uh, into that column, that it wasn't going to be a lesser form. It was going to be a literary form in, in my hands and my vision. And one of the great things about not being paid to do something is you can do whatever you want to do. Yeah. So I did. Well, there is barely a speech I give that I don't read one of the pieces from Tiny Beautiful Things. And the one I often read is from the first letter in Tiny Beautiful Things where you define love. Mm. Um, I, I think. The, Thank you. I'm so honored. The guy's name was Johnny. He was a guy who wasn't sure he really loved the woman he was dating. Yeah, you're right, Johnny. And I've I've met Johnny now. Oh, you're <laughs> kidding? No. And and what do you think? It's funny. So what happens? You know, many of the people now over the years, you know, they'll show up at my events, and and Johnny was a very uh, interesting one. So I was. I won't say what town I was in, but I was at an event after Tiny Beautiful Things had come out, and I was doing a book signing, um, and I noticed this guy kept kind of going to the back of the line. It was a long line. He kept going to the back, and I always notice those people because that means they want to they talk want to time. me about something. They want time. You know, so, but he, so he waits till last. He walks up, and he says, I'm Johnny. And I say, nice to meet you, Johnny. You know, I hope, you know, I'm just chatting with him. And he says, no. No, I'm Johnny. <laughs> and I look up at him, and he looks at me, you know, in this meaningful way. And I said, Johnny. And he was actually with the woman who he wrote to me about. Wow. And she said, thank you so much for saving our relationship. And after he read the column I wrote about love, he immediately uh, got in his car and drove to her place and said, I love you. Yeah. And now they're, and they're still together. Oh, my God, I love that because, you know, that piece, so the first paragraph is, uh, Dear Johnny, the last word my mother ever said to me was love. She was so sick and weak and out of her head, she couldn't muster the I or the you. But it didn't matter. That puny word has the power to stand on its own. And then later in the piece, so I always read this as the best definition of love I've come across. It is not so incomprehensible as you pretend, sweet pea. Love is the feeling we have for those we care deeply about and hold in high regard. It can be light as the hug we give a friend or heavy as the sacrifices we make for our children. It could be romantic, platonic, familial, fleeting, everlasting, conditional, unconditional, imbued with sorrow, stoked by sex, sullied by abuse, amplified by kindness— twisted by betrayal, deepened by time, darkened by difficulty, leavened by generosity, nourished by humor, and loaded with promises and commitments that we may or may not want to keep. What better uh, definition of love is there than that, Cheryl? <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Well, you know, and I think it's really important. I think that the reason that a lot of people 
have turned to that. I mean, when I wrote it, of course, I didn't know that um, people would pay such attention to it. But a lot of people really have um, quoted that back to me or talked to me about that paragraph. And I, and I do think it's because, um, you know, even though we all know uh, that love comes in so many different forms right. and it's so complicated, I mean, that we can love somebody who's done terrible things to us or, or we can feel love for somebody we hardly know, you know, that, that, it, that it is many things. It's not just one thing. Right. And I think what I was trying to say to Johnny is like, you know, he was so bound up in this. I love so that afraid. they're together, Cheryl. Yes, I know. I'm so excited. <laughs> I know. And I just, and it was really my letter just saying, get over it. You know, you do love her and you'll yeah. love her in a different way in 10 years if you stay together. But, you know, we don't have to, to make such a big deal out of it, this one word, you know, um, that it's a lot of things, right? Yeah. Uh, it, well, as somebody married almost 50 years, you know, I sometimes make the joke that there are days that I think Kevin and I are one person and there are days <laughs> right. that... I can't even stand the way he chooses food. <laughs> totally. Well, and what's interesting is you probably have experienced all, all or most of, of those kinds of love with him, right? Yeah, exactly. So, Cheryl, one of the things that I'm struck by in reading, and it was funny because I read, because I read the books in, in the way that one might consider backwards, I was curious about where someone could get the kind of both kindness and wisdom and wit to answer these questions, and you were still pretty young. And then after I read Wild, it made me wonder to what degree did that experience of hiking the Pacific Coast Highway really imbue you with the qualities that make you such a successful, smart advice guru? You know, this is the hardest question that anyone ever asks me, because what you're essentially asking is, how did I become who I am? Mm, you know? Yeah. And I think... I didn't want to say it that way. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of life's great mysteries. I mean, I, I do think that, you know, obviously my hike on the Pacific Crest Trail was a powerful experience for me, and um, it deepened my life in ways that are really profound and important. But it's not as if I was a, a different person before yeah. I hiked that trail. You were the person who took the hike. That's right. Yeah. I was the person who decided That's in, right. in the darkest moment of my life to take a hike. And so, you know, I think that we, I, I was really born to be a writer. Like, I really, I'm one of those writers that I feel like, okay, I was called to do this. And what I can tell you... Have is, I read that you were six when you knew you wanted to be a writer? Yes. Yeah. And, and it wasn't so articulate as... Oh, I'm, I want to be a writer. But I knew that I, I recognized the power of story mm. and language, and it made me feel in a way that nothing else made me feel. And so, you know, I always, you know, wanted to make other people feel that way. But also what goes, what goes back to the beginning is really just the person, you know, I've always been interested in what was really happening beneath the surface for people. I've always been in, interested in the most intimate, emotional, personal realms. And, you know, when I was a kid, my mom would have to say to me, like, okay, you can only ask each adult mm -hmm. three questions, and then you have to stop. Because I would be very pro yeah. I would ask people, you know, inappropriate questions that they've never been asked, or what we consider inappropriate, which I didn't consider inappropriate. But I would say, like, if I had met you and your husband, I might have said to you, why do you mm. really love your husband? You know, I, I would want to know what, what, what is it? You know, what was really beneath? I just wanted to know what was yeah. what was inside of people. I mean, I, I've always been intrigued. I always paid attention 
to my perception of people's emotional realities, which may be in contradiction to the way they seem to be. I've always been acutely aware of that. And I've also always, you know, just sort of cared, you know, about people. And and, and so in, in Dear Sugar, I did feel like, okay, the two most, um, I guess the two deepest parts of me have come to fruition. They've come to life because I've always wanted to help people. I have, I do have just sort of natural empathy for people and compassion, like so many of us do. But, you know, in, in, the, in this Dear Sugar column, I found a channel for that. And that channel just happened to, read, to run down the course that is my other great passion, yeah. which is writing. And so I was able to actually be useful via literature. Now, are there any topics you won't touch? Um, you know, I think that, that there are a couple of times I've received letters from women who are pregnant and they they want me to tell them, you know, if they should have an abortion or mm. surrender the child for adoption or keep it or, you know, and I can talk around, I can help people talk around what they might decide, but I would never tell somebody what they should do. And, um, you know, I, I do tend to not do that with other subjects as well. You know, I'm kind of like, look, I can't tell you whether you should leave your husband or not, but consider this, you know. And and I do with some of these kind of big questions like that. I'm like, listen, I can I can help you maybe clarify some of the things you might want to consider, but I can't be the person who says I think you mm. should do this. Because what I find in reading your letters, either the ones you you and Steve have been writing uh, in the New York Times or in reading Tiny Beautiful Things, is your capacity to contextualize the question for them that leaves them the freedom to think more broadly about what's impacting how they operate. Right. Yeah, that's, my, my goal is illumination yeah. rather than instruction. And I think that, you know, the, the old-fashioned advice column that, that we see usually, you know, like in the form of Dear Abby or Ann Landers or those columns that many people are familiar with, um, they are about instruction, and I and I and I don't say that by way of saying that one is superior. Uh, it's just a different thing that I'm hoping to do as a writer. And of course, that's what literature is. It seeks to tell us the truth. It seeks to illuminate. And so I do try to broaden and contextualize. I, I try to. What I always sort of think of myself is instead of answering the question, actually leading the way mm. to the deeper questions that so often sit beneath the questions we think we're asking. And, you know, what I wonder about is I listen to people over the years um, because I often find myself in the situation where people are bringing um, problems or concerns to me. And I'm always surprised at how people are, and I'm sure it's true of myself as well, are chronic in what their issues are and and how we all lack the capacity to really do the hard work or the hard thinking or the difficult steps that would effectuate change. Is it your view that people can change? I think people absolutely can change. I have no doubt about that. And, and, and you know, I've seen others change. I've seen it in my own life. But I think what you're saying is also true, and that is, um, you know, there's basically we, we each have two kinds mm. of problems. You can put, you know, one problem is a sort of situational thing. You know, this has happened. You're having a conflict with a coworker um, about this or that, or, you know, your mother-in-law has moved in with you and that's, you don't want her to live with you anymore. You know, like, what do you do? That's that kind of problem. But then there are those bigger kind of 
you know, mm. underlying issues that we each that are really born of like who we are. You know, um, for me, for example, it's always hard for me to say no. It, uh, this has been a lifelong struggle, and over the years, I've gotten better. I've gotten better. Me you know, I too. tend to be a people pleaser. I like to say yes because it makes people happy and they love me, and that's how I've gotten love. And over the years, I've I've learned how to recognize that part of my personality and, and, and deal with it. But I think I will always be dealing with it, right? I, I will never completely overcome this part of who I am. Yeah, I remember I remember uh, a friend of mine who was a psychiatrist. We were talking about this subject because I share that uh, quality with you. And she said, you know, the problem is, Roxanne, you end up being a seducer. And normally seducers don't go on marrying everybody they've seduced. And you do. <laughs> you know, not literally, but... <laughs> <laughs> That's a really good way to put it. Well, and as with anything, a lot of times, too, these character traits that we're speaking of, they they have, you know, a positive side and a negative sure. side. They have a virtue and a vice. And and so I think that also this is what I seek to do, you know, as in my work as Sugar, is just to sort of show people to themselves that mm. they, you know, these are the things that, have, you know, saying yes brings you positive things. It also brings you negative things. Like, let's just see how, you know, how who you are. Um, brings good things to your life and bad things to your life, and how you can kind of uh, make sense of that and manage that and make better decisions. Well, you know, that reminds me of another thing that I see as a common element in your advice, and that is you sort of love them despite their flaws, and you help them understand that they, yeah, that might be a flaw that you've got, but that doesn't make you a bad person or unlovable. And it seems to me that that's the thing that people most are on a search for and can't find, you know, which, you know, in a cliche is being unconditionally loved. Yeah. Oh, no, absolutely. This is, it's it's fascinating to me. Um, I I always knew we we live in a judgment culture and that many of us, you know, our impulses, you know, even though we've made some of those same mistakes, the impulse is to say, you are bad or you are good. And Mm. there's that very black and white kind of thinking. Um, But we all know that that most of us, um, you know, could be condemned for a number of things we've done and praised, and and that there's always that, um, that you know, that mix um, in, in in all of us. And and I, I'm not interested in judging people. I'm interested in talking to people about what's true. And sometimes what's true is, you know, you you lied to somebody or you cheated on somebody. Really, and sometimes even some of these darker questions, you know, people who who really did wrong somebody and don't know how to make amends and feel terrible about it, or who were wronged and they don't know how to heal. Mm. And so I just think, you know, the minute we re- remove judgment from the conversation is the, the minute we can actually start talking about what's real and what's true. Yeah. And I've all, you know, that's that's also, this is connected to, I mean, we think of this as being in the world of advice, but it's actually in the, the literary world. This is, this is what's interesting to me about giving advice is essentially, you know, this is what you do as a novelist. The reason I, how I trained for an advice columnist is I was a novelist. You know, when you write a book, you know, like a novel, you have to have characters who feel real to people, and therefore you have to have characters who are complex. Um, we don't believe anyone who's just a villain or just a saint, really. I was really in so many ways just drawing on those skills I have as a writer. As, you know, how do you build a character on the page? 
um, you make them a real person. And so the minute you learn how to do that or you, you, you know, you love those people. And so I do have that kind of love mm. for the people who write to me. That makes enormous amount of sense. I recently interviewed Nicole Krause. She has a new book out called Forest Dark, and she writes very um, philosophical, what's the meaning of life, how do we become who we are, what makes up how we operate. And I think you're exactly right, Cheryl. I think for most of us that are um, obsessive readers, that there's always, you know, there's always the the interest in learning and the interest in being entertained or distracted and all of those things. But ultimately, I think the pleasure of reading about other lives and understanding people and developing compassion from them for them, like brilliant novelists do, teaches us how to live. That is you. This is what we mean when we say, oh, that book that book saved my life, mm. you know, which, which, you know, is said so often. And I think that it's what happened is we, we found the truth in that book or sometimes in several books, in my case, in several books. And, you know, I think, you know, there is a kind of sacred quality. I mean, people go to religion for that same kind of thing, to, to feel themselves, um, you know, in a larger sense than they do in their everyday life, to be in some ways, um, to transcend their own lives. And one of the beautiful things about books is that you get to inhabit the mind and the body of another person, mm. even if that's a fictional person, if that person feels real to us, if the writer has done his or her job. Well, and I've heard it described, which I think is accurate, as one of the most intimate things that can occur, a reader to a writer in reading their work, because as we're reading, we are being as connected and open and vulnerable as we can be, because it's just us in the book. Yeah, it's real. And us and you in the book in and in somebody else's mind that you're not in any other context, you know, in any other situation. One of my favorite questions uh, that I get, you know, when I do my events, there's Q&As and stuff. One of my, my, my favorite questions, because it always thrills me, is um, sometimes people will, will ask me about my first book, Torch, which is a novel, and they'll say, so what, you know, what happened to Claire and Josh <laughs> next? You know, these are characters in the book. And, and I always say, nothing. The book ended. <laughs> you know, like they don't exist. They're in that book. <laughs> They're just, they just live in that book. But what's funny is what people are forgetting. Like, they actually think these characters have gone on living, yeah. more things have happened to them. <laughs> I love and, that. And, and nothing more happened. The book ended. But don't you love that? Don't you love that people are carrying those characters around? And, and you know, it's like Barbie dolls or dolls that used to play with. You put them in another outfit. You kept having them do things. <laughs> you know, they have, the, they have an afterlife. It's the highest praise. It's, in my mind, it's the absolute highest praise. Because that's what I want to do when I write fiction. Um, I want people to, to believe they're real. And, and, and when I write memoir, you know, you, you try to achieve that same thing. You still have to make yourself a real person to people and, and, and the people you're writing about. Just because they exist in the real world doesn't mean you've got it made on the page. You still have to bring them to life. And, yeah, I do think that that's a, it's a, you're right. It's a very intimate experience. I mean, this is why also not a day goes by that I don't get emails from people or meet people who say they feel like um, we're, we're best friends. Yeah. I just don't know it yet. <laughs> right, right. And they'll be at your door or they'll be at the end of the line waiting, waiting to have yeah. that conversation. So, Cheryl, what are the books that touched your life? Oh, my goodness. Well, Alice Monroe is really my favorite mm. writer. She, she is a profound 
you know, has just been such a profound influence on me as a human and a writer. And, and um, I just love her, you know, thinking about this idea of like making, making characters alive on the page. I mean, I, I just uh, really feel the humanity of, of those people she writes about. Every, every story I've read by Alice Monroe has moved me um, beyond measure. So she's been really important. I, I was really thinking about um, just a, a little bit ago also, uh, you know, some of my earliest influences in my 20s, uh, uh, the short story writer Raymond Carver hmm. was so important to me. And why? That's interesting. Does that surprise you? Yeah, a little bit. Really? Yeah, no, my son Carver is actually named after Raymond Carver. Um, no, yeah, I, I've always been, I mean, so, like, just drawn to his work. I think that that his, um, part of it was, like, he writes about working-class people, yeah. you know? And when I was in my 20s, I, I grew up poor, I grew up working-class, and those were the people. The people on those pages were people I really recognized. And, you know, I loved his ability to just get to that that the heart of things in a very direct uh, fashion. I love realism. You know, I'm really a, 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 real, a realist writer. Toni Morrison's novels, when I was in my 20s, The Bluest Eye and Beloved came out in that decade. And I list Bluest Eye as one of my top 10 books ever. Yeah. Of all her books, too. Yeah, it really changed my, well, there again, not just my sense of, a, like, what a writer could do, but also who I was in the world. There were so mm-hmm. many things in that book as a white person I hadn't had to contemplate or know. And, you know, I love that, you know, that I, I do think that, you know, obviously, you know, we're, we're always learning about the world and ourselves through literature. And, and that was a really influential one for me. That book switched a gear in my brain, Bluest Eye. Yeah, yeah. You know, I just, it sort of turned the kaleidoscope. I saw the world slightly differently after reading me that too. book. And, and I liked Raymond Carver for the same reason. I'm the child of immigrants and lived a very working-class life for a long time. Um, but I was fascinated. Wasn't there a controversy about his editor as the one who sort of rewrote his books? Yeah, there was some. I, I never, I mean, there, there's always, I think that it was that his editor was quite heavy-handed. Mm. But, you know, you don't, you know, Raymond Carver didn't become Raymond Carver because... He was edited. Because he was edited, right. It was there, you know. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I, I remember that, that whole conversation, and I read, I think the New Yorker published these side-by-side things of, the, you know, the before and after. Right. And stuff. You know, I, I still think Raymond Carver is who he is, and he's the phenomenal writer. He, he, I mean, his work still lives and still, I think, you know, that, that's what I mean when I said I was thinking about him recently, is I was revisiting um, some stories that I hadn't read for a while. You know, you have those writers, you know, some of these books that I I love and, and these writers I love. Some of them, you know, I read them so much in my twenties that I kind of moved on. And it's fun to go visit, revisit them, and see what they feel like now, how they land now. And did they still work for you? Yes, the people I really loved, yeah, still work for me. Um, Mary Gateskill was another very big one for me mm-hmm. um, in in my developmental years. Um, you know, just really learning how to write. I learned how to write by reading, and um, I had some great writing teachers along the way. Uh, I got my master's in fine arts and creative writing and fiction writing, actually, at Syracuse University and was mentored by George Saunders and Arthur Flowers and Mary Caponegro and also worked with Mary Gateskill, actually, um, which was like this amazing, you know, exciting dream of mine because I had learned so much from her, um, you know, before I went to Syracuse. So those people all taught me so much as teachers, but where I really learned is, you know, just reading other writers on the page and, and not just the people I've named, but so many. Yeah, writers. dozens, I'm um, sure. 
Yeah, and you just, you know, I always just studied those sentences and studied those scenes. And, you know, how do you start a chapter and how do you end a story and how do you get people in and out of a room? You know, and all of that is just right there, you know, um, right there in the books on on your shelves. You know, Cheryl, you talking about Raymond Carver is reminding me. So I have not reread him. I think I read everything he wrote back. I must have read it in my 20s or 30s. So that would be almost 40 years ago. If that's I guess that's right. But it, it, no one reads him anymore. I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to reintroduce his books in our bookstores. Right. We're going to resurrect him. I think that he does not he has not had the lingering appeal uh, that he deserves. We, we must read similarly because Alice Munro is the other one like William Trevor who are at the very top of my list because I love how they use spare language yeah. to talk about lives that seem simple yep. and in fact are enormously complex. Enormously. William Trevor is so such a master. I mean, and you know, I think that sadly, I mean, part of that you're saying people don't read Raymond Carver anymore or as much anymore um, is, you know, he's he died young and um, he's yeah. not here to keep producing work and keep, uh, you know, you know, sure. uh, stay, staying in the current conversation the way like Alice Monroe. I mean, I know it's now been a, a couple of years since her last book out and, and she did, I think, say that would be her last book, but, but, you know, she's still, you know, all these years has been publishing, right. You know, we, yeah. So it stays front and center. That's right. And Ray McCarver, he died, I think it was 1988 and he was in his forties. I mean, he died in middle age and early middle age. And, you know, I think also that there was such a thing in the eighties and, and nineties, you know, early nineties about like, you know, Raymond Carver, he was the short story guy, you know, that as with any kind of, uh, like popularity, it's like, then it becomes like, there's like a backlash that like, oh, we, Mm -hmm. you know, that's so, that's such a cliche to, to be reading him. Let's move on to somebody else. I mean, there are, there are those like trends, literary trends, if you will, um, that really aren't about like the quality of the work. I loved in Wild, um, where you talk about your mom loving Michener, yeah, and then you were in some cabin somewhere, and you could trade. You traded one of your books uh, for a Michener book, and how you were always dismissive of your mom for thinking that that was, you know, good literature. And then, of course, James Michener is a fantastic storyteller. Yes, I mean that's the, right. <laughs> that's the snobbery of youth. And all I can say yeah. is, thank goodness I got over that pretty young. Um, yeah. You know, there's, there really is no greater snob than a graduate student, for example. <laughs> like, I mean, I just, yeah. and I, I, I always feel sorry for people when I meet people in their forties and beyond who are still snobs. I just think, oh, you little, like you poor person, because what you did is you made your world small. Well, I think about that as a bookstore owner. When I opened the bookstore almost 30 years ago and came from a totally other profession, I've always said to our booksellers, A, you could judge a book maybe by its cover, but not a person coming into the store. And we should have no judgment on what they like to read. We should just help them find just the right book to read next based on their taste. It's not our job to sort of elevate them or what we think is elevating them. They're reading. That's right. I agree. And, you know, I think – I don't think that's so true now, but I think that to a segment of the population still, bookstores feel judgmental. um, And the best bookstores are not remotely judgmental. 
Right. I mean, the bookstores that I frequent, uh, you know, in, in my hometown of Portland, Oregon, um, you know, there is that sense. Those booksellers, you walk in and they, it's not what they're trying to make you read. It's what they want to help you connect to that next of thing. Of course. They're amazingly good at it. And I love I loved that. And, you know, and you're right about Mitchner. The, you know, the other thing, too, is I think that um, reading, you know, no matter what you what, what you're reading, like just the fact that you're a reader um, is a beautiful thing. And it also exactly. offers, you know, it's a gateway to the next thing. You know, I read right. Mitzner. I mean, my, you know, my mother, uh, you know, when when I was growing up, she would always be reading these Mitzner books. And, you know, I read a couple of them. And then I was and then I went to college and was told that, like, in fact, it wasn't OK that that was my favorite book. <laughs> you know? And then I quickly right. adopted that same opinion. That's not real literature. That's not a real book, people would say. Speaking of your mother, um, you know, that is – now, I haven't seen the movie. I might be the only person on the planet. But, <laughs> you know, the vividness of how you describe her and your relationship with her in Wild was not only – dear and loving and exquisite and made me want to meet her. And I know you have two kids now. What what do you think are some of the most important qualities of her as a mother that you've been able to adopt and translate into being a parent? Uh, a couple of things just immediately leapt to mind. The first one is love. My mother's mm. ease and, and great capacity to express love. There was never any sense of withholding, um, mm. you know, and, and this is what we want. I mean, it's, you know, we're it's born we want. to be loved. And, and, you know, some people are born to parents who, who, who really struggle with um, expressing that and, and, and embodying that and being that. And my mother was loved. And that sense mm. of this tremendous warmth I, in Wild, I say, you know, she... She every day, you know, she she worked her way through her entire reserve of love. You know, it's always she gave it all to yeah. us every day. That doesn't mean she was like perfect and like always doing the you know the whatever we think these you know idealized mothers we have in our minds were doing. But she loved us, and there was that was never and never felt insecure about that. And neither did my siblings. So there's that. And there's also my mother's tremendous optimism. Which, as a teenager, I was like, oh, mom, you're so, you know, eye-rolling at her about her, <laughs> you know, telling me things like, you can always find beauty in the day. There's always a sunrise and always a sunset, and it's your job to be there for it. If you want good things, you have to find them, and they're there, no matter what is happening. It took me until after her death to truly learn that lesson, but she was right, and, and she made life magical. You know, one of the things I, I write about in Wild is how she did, you know, there was a sense of always abundance in my house. I grew up in poverty. Yeah. All of the years of my childhood, I lived, my family's income level was below the federal poverty line. And I would not tell you that I had a poor childhood. My mother would always say, we're not poor because we're rich in love. And there again, I didn't know how mm. right she was. And meant it. Yeah. And meant and, it. And, and also made it. I mean, we, I had a great, mm. I mean, it's so funny because of course I, you know, had an abusive father and I mean, I had all kinds of terrible things happen to me in my childhood. I was sexually abused, you know, all of these dark things, but I really, when I look back on my childhood, I, I, I do really think, oh, you know, on the whole, I had a, a pretty beautiful life. I had a pretty beautiful childhood 
And that was because of my mother. Yeah. So what I'm fascinated by when you hear stories of those that overcome circumstances, because you could also be telling the story of the circumstances in which you grew up despite your mother's love, where the impact of the negative things just wore you down, you know, rearranged your brain in a way that it made it difficult for you to ever find happiness. So you have two siblings. Are all of you as resilient and positive thinking as you are, or did they sort of chemically um, react to the same set of circumstances in a different they way? They differently, yeah. And that's hard. I mean, that's a hard, sad part of my life. And, you know, I, yeah. I love my siblings, and um, they're both really good people. You know, I don't want to invade their privacy, but, you know, there have been struggles that are absolutely and deeply and profoundly connected to, like I said, some of the darker parts of our childhood. You know, but what's really interesting, even even amid those, struggles, you know, my mother's light does shine in their lives as well. And and I think that there's this wonderful um, George Eliot quote from Middlemarch that, that I'm not going to remember off the top of my head, but, but you know, essentially it's, it's, it's this idea of like, you know, there are so many people who've lived ordinary lives and, and now lie dead in our unmarked um, graves, but, you know, that by sheer fact that they existed really and made made our you know life better for me and you. And I do think of my mom in that way. You know that even in times, for example, that my brother has struggled, that that my mother, you know, and the and the way that she loved him and the things that she gave him, um, have made him better able to find his way through some of his deepest struggles. And my sister too. That it would be even more difficult. Yeah. Without. Yeah, that. but I mean, and and that's it too. This goes back your question about my siblings and me, and it really goes back to one of the first questions you asked me, which is like, you know, how did I become who I am? And how did you become who you are? And how did any of us become? And in part, you know, and and the the answer is that it's a mix of the things that happened to us and and the people we were born to be. That there was, for whatever reason, I always found this space in in writing and in literature. And I do think that that's what saved me. There was something that, that, that is the unbreak unbroken thread of my life. And I think that it led me to, I mean, I think writing is an innately healing practice, whether I'd ever published a word or not, that it, it has allowed me in so many ways to to be resilient. It, is, it has allowed me to find a way out of my own struggles or hardships. And my siblings don't have that. Yeah. And, you know, I wonder, I, I don't think I thought about that. I'm the oldest of six. Uh, my parents are Holocaust survivors. And we've all reacted differently, but I'm the, it'll all work out, the optimist. And I too was a reader. My parents read to me when they couldn't read English and just read to me phonetically. Uh You know, it's an interesting question about whether reading is, among its other brilliant attributes, is its capacity to build a kind of resilience. Right. You can see other people on the page doing it. I hadn't it. thought about that. I mean, because you see examples of people overcoming uh-huh. circumstances. Absolutely. So, Cheryl, who do you turn to for advice? My husband, foremost. He's he's this fabulous person. I've been um, married to him. We we just we've been together about twenty two years and been married for seventeen or eighteen eighteen years. <laughs> just doing the math, and um, you know he's he's my great counsel and my best friend. I also have so many really good friends. 
I also turn to literature. Mm. You know, I, I I really do think of you know literature as my religion. Um, I often will find consolation and comfort in words. You know, I wrote about in Wild how I carried Adrian Rich's book, The Dream of a Common Language, with me the whole hike, uh, and it was because I felt like there was something in that book that were that, that that you know was a kind of sacred text to me. And so I turned I turned to books and I turned to people and and sometimes I turn to strangers. You know, I think that that's the beautiful thing about advice is that we forget, you know, there is no one, you know, wise voice that that is always going to be the voice of wisdom for us. There's no, there's no right. um, one source of good advice. Um sometimes it uh, you know the most casual thing you'll you'll see or hear from a you know somebody you don't even know um somebody from a kid you know might blurt something out and you think you know what that's a good point <laughs> and then onward you go Cheryl you know one of the things when i was reading wild and i thought you know like i am sure like millions of people who read the book i'm like oh my god i can't believe she's going to do that she's going to get hurt they're not going to be you know i was like worried about you, you know, the whole time. I mean, I knew you were alive at the end of it, so I I wasn't, like, panicked. But I wonder what role your own optimism and sense of humanity get people to react to you. You know, and I think about it most acutely on the trail where, you know, you were hitchhiking and you were with strangers and trusting people. I think about that night you went to go join uh, sort of early in the trip they were yeah. three guys that you went and joined and had dinner with them. And I'm thinking, oh, yeah, yeah, I don't know if that's a good <laughs> idea, Cheryl, for you to be doing that. But do you think – to what extent do you think your own expectation that will that people will be good contributes to their being good? <laughs> that's a great question. You know, I think that there are – there's bad luck. I mean, there's certainly – things that bad things that happen to people and you know whether they were nice or not or you know i mean i think that sure. you know, i don't want to attribute too much to it but but i also i think you're you know you're right of course i've always been a kind of open friendly sort um you know then oftentimes people are open and friendly to you in return the kindness of strangers thing um is sometimes contingent upon um us being kind to strangers right and I, I think we forget that it's, yeah, I do believe it could that. Be a, you know, there's some reciprocity there. You know, I'm sad that we're running out of time because I've just loved the opportunity to have a conversation with you. So why don't I just close with um, two questions? Well, actually, I have one other question. I was curious. Nick Hornby wrote the screenplay for Wild, right? Yes. How how was that for you, it, having him write your story? It was wonderful. First off, Nick is a brilliant writer, and I've loved him yeah, a long and time. Yeah, and funny. You know, and as, I mean, I've loved his work a long time. And, you know, so, of course, it was a great honor to have a writer I re- respect and admire really be the one who interprets my book for the screen. And then I came to know Nick over the process, um, and he is a stellar human, really just such, you know, he's got such a great mind, but an even more beautiful heart. And uh, I feel like that was, you know, very on every page of the script. And I think that he just treated my life and my book with such care and consideration. I was I was just thrilled. You felt safe in his hands. I did. Absolutely. That's great. And so what are you working on now? I'm working on my next book. And I it's a memoir and I have to write it. <laughs> and it's well, I am writing it, but it's you know it's 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 writing is always uh, you know a, a glory 
it's always agony and glory, always agony and glory for me. There's, there's no other way to, about, around it. It's the thing I, like I said, I feel I'm here to do. It's my calling. And it's also like, the, you know, the thing I most dread. <laughs> but I, I don't think I'm alone in that. I think a lot of writers have that kind of relationship to their work. I do think so. But the thing I, I'd like to thank you for uh, before closing is, you know, I think whether you're writing your advice columns or you're writing your novel or you're writing your memoir, the number of people that are impacted by either being comforted or inspired is unusual. You know, lots of writers have lots of impacts on people, and many of us have been blessed thousands of times with books or words or sentences, but you have an unusual capacity to do that. And, you know, as a bookseller, I'm always excited to put tiny, beautiful things in their hands or wild because I know it will make them happy. It will make them think about things differently. So I'm excited that there'll be more words coming from you to make so many people happy. Thank you so much. That means everything to me. Thanks again to Cheryl Strait. And now let's hear what's on the front table at RJ Julia. We are joined today on our What's on the Front Table segment by Brian Raitt, who is one of the book buyers at R.J. Julia Booksellers and Wesleyan R.J. Julia Booksellers. And our What's on the Front Table segment is about how do bookstores and buyers decide what to put on the front table? Is it based on the jacket? Is it based on what they love? Is it based on what they think people ought to read or what they think people want to read? But it's always fascinating to me as I go to bookstores around the country to see what they've decided to put on their front table. So Brian's making that decision all day, every day in two stores. So we thought he'd be the perfect person to join us and talk about what he's got on the front table and why. So welcome, Brian. Hi, Roxanne. Thanks for having me on. Uh, Brian, let's start with a a way of um, introducing you to people. How did you become a bookseller? Well, I worked in publishing for a while, um, but I decided I wanted to get away from textbooks and and move toward the trade side. And so when I I saw the opportunity at at R.J. Julia, I just uh, jumped right on it. And is buying, is leaving the textbook business and being, although now you're slightly back in a in a store that sells textbooks. Um, but has it been, has buying trade books been what you had thought it might be? It is and it isn't. Um, there's, you know, a lot more that goes into it than I originally thought. Right. Um, <laughs> but that makes it all the more interesting. And um, it's, it's just really fascinating, uh, satisfying work. Yeah. And, and part of it is, right, you're you're not buying books just for you, right? right? You have to think about what other readers might want. Yeah, that, that's the real fun part is you have to get in, in other people's, you know, reading shoes and, and imagine, you know, is, is this something somebody wants to read? And you learn that as you're buying and as you see sales, you know, you, you discover that, um, you know, a book that you probably normally wouldn't buy or read um, is, you know, flying off the front tables. And do you, has it changed the way you read? It, it absolutely has. Um, before I had this job, I mostly read literary fiction, and, and now I've, I've really um, started to get interested in, in science and nature books, um, history a little bit, um, and I've also gravitated towards, you know, fiction that I maybe normally wouldn't read. Right. So what is on your front table? Well, we've got a lot of good stuff on the front <laughs> table, but today I picked out uh, four books that 
I'm really excited about, and three of which I've read. The first one is Savage Country by Robert Olmsted. Olmsted is, is one of these great American authors who I feel like just isn't known by enough people, mm. um, or at least, you know, among our customers. I want everybody to know this guy. I want everybody to read him. He just consistently delivers memorable, beautifully told stories. And um, I actually think Savage Country is maybe his best one so far. And what's it about? Well, uh, it takes place after the Civil War. Um, most of his stories do, actually. He's firmly planted in, in Civil War and post-Civil War America. This one is about uh, a woman who, her husband, who was saddled with tons of debt, he dies. So she's left with all this debt to pay off. So what she does is she enlists her husband's serious brother, Michael, to, to help her get rich quickly. And, and the way you got rich quickly back in those days was you went on a huge, dangerous buffalo hunt. So um, that's what they do. They head south out of Kansas, which is where Elizabeth lives. They venture into uh, what was known as Indian territory with a, a whole group of savory and, and unsavory characters, and they start um, killing buffalo by the thousands. So, you know, if I, I've never read him, or if I read him, it was early on. So if I recall, his books are have a poetic quality in yeah. his description of nature. Absolutely. Yeah, he, he has a really lyrical quality. He has a very vivid sense of time and place. And, and exactly, his descriptions of nature will make you stop and, and, you know, see that image in your mind as you're reading. He sort of, I like to say he kind of sits somewhere between Ernest Hemingway and Cormac McCarthy in his, in his writing style. You know, he's very direct and, and sort of brutal, very beautiful at the same time. All right. Those are those are good analogies. And what else do you have on the front table? Uh, we also have The Origins of Creativity by Edward O. Wilson. And this is maybe my favorite book of the year so far. For those of you who don't know Edward O. Wilson, he is the father of sociobiology. He was just born to be a scientist. He's, he's probably one of our brightest scientific minds. He's considered the foremost expert on ants. The reason I say he was born to be a scientist is because even from a young age, he has just been obsessed with with being outdoors and looking at nature. There's this story about him when he was seven years old, he was out fishing by himself one day and um, accidentally blinded himself in one eye when he was fishing. And he didn't do anything. He didn't run home to mom and dad to, to have him bring him to the doctor. Uh, he stayed out there and he kept fishing because he loved being outdoors so much. And what's interesting is he maintained perfect 2010 vision in the eye that wasn't damaged, and that actually caused him to focus on the littlest, tiniest things in nature even more. So he just has this really interesting story. You know, he discovered the first colony of fire ants in the United States at the age of 18. So mm. this is a guy who just has been doing it since he could breathe, basically. And, um, you know, I've never I've never read him, but your, your description makes me want to read him. You know, that's that's really all you need to do. <laughs> but the book itself is fascinating. So it, it's called The Origins of, of Creativity. And, um, there's a lot in it. It's it's not dense. It's very accessible, but it's intellectually challenging. Basically, what he's saying is, you know, we need to have a firm understanding of both the sciences and the humanities, both of which are rooted in human creativity, you know, if we want to understand our origins and if we want to understand exactly what makes us human. And, and he thinks the humanities don't draw from the sciences enough. He thinks we're selling ourselves short there, you know, instead of asking how did we come to acquire these traits? Um, we need to ask why we, we came to acquire these traits as a species. He, he makes a call for third enlightenment, basically. And the third enlightenment would allow us to unite the humanities and the sciences into a single discipline, which would 
ideally help us overcome the shortcomings of both of those disciplines. And, you know, the reason he's calling for that enlightenment is because, you know, while our achievements as a species are impressive, they also make us very dangerous. And, you know, the, the chief thing he points to there is our abuse of the planet. Mm. You know, it'll be, it would be interesting to know what colleges are doing to try to integrate those two sciences, really, in in furtherance of what he's talking about. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, I think this is kind of a call to action. I, he doesn't cover it at length in the book, but I don't think they're doing as much as, as they could be as the way he makes it sound. So, you know, we'll, we'll see if, if his writings have any impact. Yeah. Well, he's a pretty influential guy. He absolutely is. Yeah. I mean, he's just, he's prolific. He, he's written so much and, you know, he, such a such a firm hold in the in the uh, community that you hope that people listen to him. <laughs> mm. We'll we'll see. We'll we'll follow up on that. And what else is on the front table? Also on the front table, we have Home Fire by uh, Camilla Shamsi. I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. This is a fiction book that was nominated uh, for the Man Booker Prize this year, actually. And I think this is one that will really make her a household name. Mm. Without giving too much away, it's basically a retelling of Antigone by Sophocles. It's told from the point of view of all of the main characters, of which there are, are five. And it's, it starts with the story of Isma, who is a, a Londoner of Pakistani descent. She moves to Massachusetts on a student visa uh, to study at Amherst. She's, she's raised her siblings. They're twin siblings. Her sister, Anika, and her brother, are Parveyas. Uh, she's raised them since their mother died. And their father, actually, was a jihadist who's also dead. And, and his legacy has really made their lives very, very difficult. Simultaneously, you have the son of Britain's home secretary, who's a Muslim, and he becomes entwined in the lives of the two sisters, and that's what really drives the story forward. The twin brother decides to join ISIS and, and has sec- second thoughts, and the sisters have to get him home. So that pushes the story forward, and um, the, the conclusion is a knockout. It's the, the last page is one of the most powerful pages I've read in a long time. Mm, you know, I have not sp- I have not read the book yet, but I haven't spoken to a single person who has read it that has not been thrilled with it. Yeah, and I think with good reason. I mean, you know, the way she weaves together all these different points of view in these narrators is really thrilling. And it's about so much. You know, it's, it's a really contemporary story about family. It's a love story. It's a political story. And it's just very, very timely. So I think that's why people are reacting to it the way they are. Excellent. And what's the last book you want to share with us? Uh, The last book is From Here to Eternity, Traveling the World to Find the Good Death by Caitlin Dowdy. Mm. This is a really fascinating book. Um, She previously wrote Smoke Gets in Your Eyes, which is which I can't recommend enough. It's it's wonderful. And that book was about the death industry and and the death culture, I guess, in America, and basically how it's just a it's a big scam in her opinion. Uh, she actually worked as a mortician for a short time, and she, through her writings, and also you know when she's not writing, she's she's pushing for innovations in the death industry. But this book sort of picks up where the last book left off. She travels the globe to explore how other cultures deal with death and how they care for their dead. And this is stuff that most Americans wouldn't ever think could could possibly be happening. You know, in America, we we have a very sterile, impersonal system of dealing with death and with dead bodies. And meanwhile, in, in Tibet, for example, when someone dies, a family member is assigned to break up the dead body with a blunt axe-like instrument, and then the body is left outside to be consumed by, by animals and by nature itself. In Tokyo, relatives use chopsticks to remove loved ones' bones from their from the ashes after they're cremated. And, you know, meanwhile, 
back in America, it's it's very it's very stiff. We have to wear black to the funeral, and you know, down in Mexico, they literally have glitter cannons at um, Dia de los Muertos. So it's this really interesting uh, exploration of of cultures. So so Brian, I can't help after you've talked about these four books, which all sound great and tend to mimic the way I might read. But I'm also finding for myself and for others that there's a need, given everything going on in the world, to just be entertained and distracted. So what would you recommend for that category? Well, you know, you can't go wrong with a with a spy novel if you're looking for uh, entertainment and distraction. I just read... Um... A Legacy of Spies by John le Carre, who's been the best in the business of, of spy novels for, for years and years. And, and it was really, really good. Um, it, it picks up with George Smiley's crew in present day, and it, it sort of looks back on a mission gone bad during the Cold War. And so the present day and, and the past are coming together. And um, le Carre is just He's so much fun. I mean, he integrates these, you know, top secret reports and memos and and letters, and you know, they're filled with information and misinformation, and you're just constantly guessing. And it's just, you know, just a fabulous puzzle to put together. I, I thought it was a lot of fun. My husband's reading it, and he's, you know, he's always been a John Le Carre fan, and he feels that this is right up there with the other books of his of John Le Carre that he's loved. So now, are my closing question to you, Brian, that I ask the first time uh, we have a buyer on the air is, what's the book that changed your life? Oh, that's a good question. If I if I had to go with one, I guess I would go with The Hours by Michael Cunningham. Mm. You know, we read it in college, and so we really dissected it. That may have something to do with it, but mainly I just hadn't really seen a book do what that book did. You know, it takes three characters from three generations, all in three different points in time, and it weaves them together in a way that's just really impressive. You know, the, the characters kind of overlap and they echo one another. You know, for example, you know, Virginia Woolf is a character in the book, and she wrote Mrs. Dalloway, and we follow her on her day. And it all takes place in, in one day of, of these people's lives. And then Clarissa Vaughn is the other main character in present-day New York, and and her day is strikingly similar but, but different than Virginia Woolf's. And then the third character, Laura Brown, she's in 1950s Los Angeles. And you start to see uh, their common struggles. And it's just one of those books I've read three or four times. Cunningham just has such a good way of, of making everyday, mm. ordinary things seem very beautiful and meaningful. Michael Cunningham is one of my most favorite writers. And if you ever get to meet him, Brian, he's also one of the nicest people you could meet. There's just something... Uh, you know, that that heart that you feel in the way he writes is very present in his actual persona. So, Brian, I really want to thank you for uh, appearing on Just the Right Book. As the owner of R.J. Joy, I, I want to really thank you for always doing a great job because I know our customers look forward to what we put on the front table, and there's always a nice mixture, and I think that's um, a credit to your way of thinking in the broadest way possible about all the different kinds of readers that exist. So thank you for appearing on the show, and I'll see you tomorrow. Thanks very much, Roxanne. Thanks again to today's guests. If you haven't subscribed yet, please subscribe to Just the Right Book podcast on iTunes, and please help us spread the word by telling your friends, your family, anybody who loves books. And for a complete list of all the books we talked about today, just go to bookpodcast.com. Just the Right Book podcast is produced by Collisions, the podcast division of CRN International. 
Our original music was created by Mark Berman. Many thanks to our sound engineer, Pat Keogh, and our producer, Christina Torres. Thank you all so much for listening. <laughs>